Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Welcome to episode five of Title Nerds, and I am Michael O'Donnell, a co-managing partner Riker Danzig, Sheer Highland Freddy, and I'm with my partner Bethany Abley. And we have today two of our esteemed bankruptcy partners, Joe Schwartz and Tara Shellhorn, to take us through some of the ins and outs of bankruptcy and real estate. We also have Mike Crowley of our title team to end this presentation with a significant title case of the last couple of months. So let's start with Joe. And Joe, we often hear that liens and mortgages are supposed to pass through bankruptcy and remain unaffected. But what we do, particularly with you guys, we meet people uh, and entities all the time, trustees, to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Can you take us through that principle and issues that pop up in avoidance situations such as preferences, fraudulent conveyances, and the stuff you deal with every day? Sure, sure, Mike. So, you know, generally speaking, uh, the filing by a debtor of a bankruptcy case creates an estate in bankruptcy. And that's what you've heard about, Mike, and that's what is commonly referred to as property of the estate. And property of the estate is defined in the bankruptcy code. It's a very broad definition. And essentially, all the assets of the debtor, whether they're real property, personal property, intangible property, they're property of the estate. Now, with respect to pre-petition liens and claims and mortgages, generally, as you just articulated, liens and mortgages that have attached to property prior to the debtor, which is the mortgagor, prior to the debtor's bankruptcy filing are unaffected by the bankruptcy and pass through bankruptcy unaffected. However, there's an exception to that general rule where the bankruptcy court during the bankruptcy case enters an order that affects those liens and mortgages. And there are various ways that a bankruptcy court may affect liens or mortgages during a bankruptcy case. One of the ways that a bankruptcy court may affect liens or mortgages is through what you just referred to as avoidance action claims. And so under the bankruptcy code, a debtor or a trustee has what is commonly referred to as avoidance powers. And those things are, for example, um, some liens or mortgages may be avoided by a debtor or a trustee under the bankruptcy codes, what's commonly referred to as strong arm powers clause which provides that a debtor or a trustee has the power to avoid any transfer that would be avoidable by a creditor under state law. An example of that is a transfer that's void as to a good faith purchaser under a state recording statute. Another example would be where a lien or a mortgage may be avoided by a debtor or a trustee as a preferential transfer under Section 547 of the Bankruptcy Code, which you just referred to. So yet another example are liens or mortgages that may be avoided by a debtor or a trustee, which may be characterized as fraudulent transfers under either state law or under the bankruptcy code, and that's Section 548 of the bankruptcy code. I think that answers your question. Thanks, Joe. And Joe or Tara, you know, one of my 
prime focus is that someone who not only represents title insurance companies and underwriters, but banks, particularly banks in troubled debt, is preferences. And Tara, can you take us through the rules of preferences and the do's and don'ts? Sure. Thanks, Mike, for having us today. You know, one of the things I guess I would begin by saying about preferences is any client we've ever been retained to represent in preference case. And it's always a very difficult thing to try to explain to a client who feels like they haven't done anything wrong, why they're being sued for simply being paid. So as a lawyer, I think one of the primary challenges is trying to explain to a client why they're in this situation. And as Mike and I had talked about many times, bankruptcy doesn't always play by the same rules as the other courts and doesn't always make sense to everybody. But the whole concept behind a preference in bankruptcy is an effort by the bankruptcy code to level the playing field among creditors. To the extent a creditor was paid in the 90 days before the bankruptcy, that transfer may be subject to avoidance, also subject to possible defenses, which we'll get into. So Section 547 of the Bankruptcy Code sets forth the different elements of preferences, and there are six elements that a trustee bears the burden of establishing. The first is a transfer of property of the debtor. The second is made to or for the benefit of creditor. The third is for or on account of an antecedent debt owed by the debtor before the transfer was made. Four, made while the debtor is insolvent. And I'll note that there is a presumption that a debtor is insolvent in the 90 days preceding a bankruptcy petition unless the creditor can present evidence to the contrary. Fifth, made 90 days before the date of the bankruptcy petition or one year if the creditor is deemed an insider, which is statutorily defined in the bankruptcy code. And sixth, resulting in the creditor receiving a greater distribution than it otherwise would have in a Chapter 7 case. So that's what's known as the liquidation test. So there you have to hypothesize what the values might have been if there is a Chapter 7 liquidation and that the creditor received more than they would have under that scenario. And Tara, are there Great. any hot issues right now in preferences that you can share with us? There are some, I guess, in our world, what I describe as hot issues. <laughs> hot issues is, is just is a relevant term, huh? Right. <laughs> it's hey. all relative. <laughs> Hey, you know, guys, there could be bankruptcy nerds listening to this as well as title nerds. So <laughs> we welcome all nerds. <laughs> so there's some things I certainly think are interesting. So I'll, I'll put myself in that bankruptcy nerd category. Uh, the first is the Small Business Reorganization Act of 2019, which became effective in, in early 2020, amended Section 547B of the Bankruptcy Code and added an additional element where the plaintiff in a preference suit must allege that the preference claim is based on reasonable due diligence in the circumstances of the case and takes into account a party's known or reasonable, knowable affirmative defenses. So in other words, the trustee who is suing on preferences is not supposed to just be able to go out and sue on every single claim that's appearing in the books and records. There's supposed to be some level of due diligence and a heightened burden before a lawsuit commence. This amendment is still relatively new and rather untested right now. And so questions exist, what's reasonable diligence? What's reasonably knowable? For example, if you as a creditor filed a proof of claim in a case, and you attach documentation whereby the trustee may be able to determine that you have a new value defense if they were to do those calculations, is that 
beyond the scope of what they have to do to establish their burden that was reasonably knowable. And so there's a real risk that exists, I think, right now for trustees and debtors bringing preference suits. And this is area where nobody wants to make bad law. So it exists as a sort of another line of defense for defendants now seeking to maybe gain additional leverage. Another area that I think is also pretty interesting is the impact of COVID-19 on traditional preference defenses. The most relevant being the ordinary course of business defense, which is one of the primary ways in which defendants will fight back against the preference lawsuit by pointing to the course of conduct between the parties. If you go back now and you look at the COVID marketplace and two years ago or so when COVID began, many businesses, especially in, in different sectors like retail or food and entertainment, were significantly impacted and the course of conduct between parties is drastically different than it may have been during the historical period of the relationship. And so that may present some real challenges for creditors who need to mount an ordinary course of business defense in cases that are sort of coming up presently. And I think the last area I would just point out, and this is something I had heard about the other day, is the impact that mining of accounts receivables or process mining may have on how creditors are able to kind of control their accounts receivables. There's AI and different kinds of technology that are out there that are really focused in on trying to make sure that companies keep their AR in line and don't extend past ordinary terms. And I think it may help clients to you know, better establish ordinary course defenses going forward. Technology over, you know, individuals working in their accounts receivable department. Uh, Tara, let me ask you a question and show why we always have you guys side by side with us in any case in bankruptcy. What is a course of conduct defense through preference? And, and what are some of the other sort of standard defenses that creditors use and that you guys have used with some success? Other than, you know, the old standard settle with the trustee. Right. Well, I mean, settling with the trustee is always, is always often where you're hoping to get. And especially as you guys know, these can begin sometimes in even a pre-litigation posture, just responding to a demand letter. And the effort we always make is to try and mount as great of a defense as we can and settle, though it doesn't always happen. So if you're looking at defending against a preference, the first thing you need to do is figure out if there's a way to attack the trustee's prima facie case. So, for example, first element is that it was a transfer of the debtor's property. Wasn't really the debtor's property that was interest. It was was transferred. Is it possible that there is an argument that money is held in trust? Something like that you can look at. You can also look at other. I guess I'd say, in addition to attacking the trustee's prima facie case. You could also look at things like whether or not the statute of limitations has passed. You can look at venue provisions and also other key provisions in the code, given the amount of the preference. It has to be over it's about a $7,000 threshold. And once you get past all those more kind of procedural type of defenses, then we get down to kind of the work of it, which is the ordinary course of business, which I mentioned before. That can be either the ordinary course of business between the parties, which is subjective. And you would go and you would look at payment terms, how long between payments, whether or not 
the payments made during the preference period really fall in line and match with historical payments between the parties. Or you can look at ordinary course of the particular industry, which is referred to as the objective. In that case, if you were to get into litigation and go to trial, you would end up needing to obtain an expert to talk about industry standards and comparing the preference period to the industry standards. In addition, there is contemporary exchange of value, which is a defense that allows a creditor to seek preference if the payment was made contemporaneously with delivery or BOD, cash on delivery. There is a subsequent new value defense, which is a defense that allows a creditor who has shipped additional inventory or provided additional services to the debtor after receipt of a preferential transfer to credit the amount of the new value against the alleged preferential transfer. In other words, an offset that can reduce exposure. Great. And before Bethany takes us to evil twin of the trustees avoidances, fraudulent transfers. Do you guys have any sort of war stories on preferences you could share with us? Mike, I would say as to war stories, you know, it all depends on who you're dealing with. You know, the bankruptcy bar is a small bar, whether it's people who practice in the state of New Jersey or practice nationally. And so, you know, there's some people that are really difficult and they don't want to settle on reasonable terms. And so you have to go through more motion practice. Usually preference cases settle fairly quickly. Usually you get, you go back and forth with writing letters and you set forth your defenses as Tara articulated these various defenses you can assert. And usually it's done pretty painlessly and pretty effortlessly through just the exchange of position letters. And so I wouldn't exactly call that, you know, like a war story when you send letters back and forth, but Every now and then, you actually get to a case where either the other side is being unreasonable or there's a lot of money at stake. And so you, you then get to litigate, whether it's through motion practice and summary judgment or whether you actually get to a trial. And, and I personally had a bunch of those cases go through motion practice years ago in Delaware in a case. And there's a bunch of reported decisions that have my name on them in Delaware in the preference arena. So I would call those war stories because it's not that often that you have a preference case that actually results in a, in a reported decision. Because like I said, probably 90% or 95% of preference cases result in settlements fairly quickly. So, you know, preferences aren't the most sexy type of issues that you, know, you can talk about war stories. But, you know, actually getting reported decisions or actually going to either a plenary hearing or a summary judgment type situation is quite interesting. All right. Well, then maybe we won't leave with war stories and we'll just skip to the evil twin fraudulent transfers. And Bethany, why don't you start with that? Sounds good. So I know, Joe, you and I actually earlier today were talking about how the term fraudulent transfer means a different thing in my world than it does in your world. And in my world, I think at least it means a forged deed or something like that. So we have we have fraudulent transfers that we think of meaning forged deeds. And then we think, okay, there's also fraudulent transfers in the bankruptcy context. But in our world, you know, we'll throw in the in the bankruptcy context to clarify that. So if you could just talk to us a little bit about fraudulent transfers in the bankruptcy context and, you know, what's the law on that? Is it federal law? Is it state law? Is it both? How does that work together? Just kind of take us through that, please. Sure. Thanks, Bethany. So under the bankruptcy code, a debtor or a trustee can seek to avoid any transfer 
of an interest of the debtor in property. And Tara just, you know, walked us through preferences. Similar language starts out in the statute in connection with fraudulent transfers. And while preferences is found in Section 547, as Tara said, fraudulent transfers is found in Section 548 of the Bankruptcy Code. And essentially, for all intents and purposes, and I won't read the statute to you and bore you with that, but Section 548 says that any transfer that's made within two years before the date of the filing of the bankruptcy is potentially avoidable as a fraudulent transfer, provided that it meets certain criteria. That's what's referred to as the federal fraudulent transfer statute in the bankruptcy code. Then there's another section of the bankruptcy code, and it's Section 544. And under Section 544, a debtor or a trustee may avoid any transfer of an interest of the debtor and property, same preamble, that is voidable under applicable law by a creditor holding an allowed unsecured claim. And so that statute, Section 544, when it refers to under applicable law, it's referring for all intents and purposes to state law. And so a trustee or a debtor can either look to federal bankruptcy law, which is Section 548, or federal law, which incorporates into it state law, which is Section 544. And the reason that a trustee or a debtor would look to state law as opposed to federal bankruptcy law under 548 is because the statute of limitations, for all intents and purposes, is different under state law. There's a two-year look back under Section 548, which is the federal statute dealing with fraudulent transfer law, whereas under state law, most state statutes either have a four-year or a six-year look back with respect to fraudulent transfers. And so very often when you see a complaint that's brought by a debtor or a trustee, the debtor or trustee seeks to avoid and recover transfers under both Section 544 and applicable state law, as well as under Section 548. And so the typical complaint, and, and by the way, all these things, whether it's preferences or fraudulent transfers, it's brought by way of complaint, which is called an adversary proceeding. That's a term of art in the bankruptcy arena. But usually there are multiple counts in these complaints, and one count might say, that the transfer is avoidable under Section 548 because it's within two years. And then if there's transfers that go beyond two years, or even if they're within the two years, they might also contain a count under 544 and applicable to state law. I think that answers your question, but it, you know, I could go further into fraudulent transfers and you know, what they are, if you would like. How do you defend against fraudulent transfers? Sure. So when, when you're talking about defending against a fraudulent transfer, you have to first determine what type of fraudulent transfer it is. And there's two types of fraudulent transfers. There's an actual fraudulent transfer, and that's a transfer that's made with the actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud creditors. And it's very hard for a trustee or a debtor to prove actual intent. And so case law talks about different badges of fraud. I can go into that if you'd like. But the other type of fraudulent transfer, one being the actual fraudulent transfer, the other one being the constructive fraudulent transfer. And so the constructive fraudulent transfer is a transfer where the debtor received less than reasonably equivalent value in exchange for the transfer. You know, the typical situation is where the husband transfers his house to his wife for $10. You know, um, the house is worth a million dollars. So that the trustee or the debtor has to prove that the debtor received less than reasonably equivalent value in exchange, plus that the trustee or the debtor has to prove that the debtor was insolvent on the date that the transfer was made or became insolvent as a result of the transfer. That's one subsection of 
constructive fraudulent transfer. There are a couple other subsections as well where a trustee or debtor has to prove, and, and this is either or, it's one or the other. You don't have to prove all these things, but the trustee or the debtor ha has to prove that the debtor was engaged in a business or a transaction or was about to engage in a business or a transaction for which any property remaining with the debtor was an unreasonably small capital. That's the typical situation is where the debtor is undercapitalized. And so the, the, the transfer is made and the debtor is undercapitalized. And so um, if, if all those things occur, then the transfer can qualify as a constructive fraudulent transfer. Another example of a constructive fraudulent transfer is where the debtor intended to occur or believed that it would incur debts that would be beyond the debtor's ability to pay such debts as those debts matured. And the final constructive fraudulent transfer is where the transfer was made to or for the benefit of an insider. My hypothetical with the wife is, is a good example, but there's other types of insiders under an employment contract and not in the ordinary course of business. So that's that's a, a particular type of constructive fraudulent transfer. So back to your question about how do you defend, it all depends on what type of fraudulent transfer you're talking about. So if you're talking about the actual fraudulent transfer, you attack the, the trustee or the debtor's allegation that there was actual intent involved. If you are defending against the constructive fraudulent transfer, you would attack against these different prongs. For example, you know, to the extent that the debtor trustee is arguing that the debtor received less than reasonably equivalent value, you'd be arguing that no, in fact, the debtor received equivalent value or reasonably equivalent value in exchange for what was transferred. And so there's different types of defenses that one would have. And these are obviously very fact intensive. And usually these things are not decided, you know, on a motion to dismiss unless the complaint is defective on its face. Usually you go through a bit of litigation in connection with these types of actions. All right, Joe, we've heard that the phrase a trustee is that I think you've mentioned it is a bona fide purchaser for value, a hypothetical bona fide purchaser for value. What does that mean in the bankruptcy context and what powers does that give the trustee and how do you address that? So the term like bona fide purchaser for value or BFP, which is commonly referred to, is a term that's predominantly used in the common law setting in common law jurisdictions, and it refers to an innocent party who purchases property without notice of another party's claim to that property. In the bankruptcy setting, Section 544, and I talked about 544 before in connection with fraudulent transfers, there's a different subsection of Section 544 that also deals with giving the trustee or the debtor hypothetical lien creditor status or bona fide purchaser status for value. And essentially, that subsection of Section 544 that I'm talking about now says that the trustee or debtor shall have, as of the commencement of the case, and without regard to any knowledge of the trustee or debtor of any creditor, the rights and powers of, or may avoid any transfers or property of, the debtor or any obligation incurred by the debtor that is avoidable by, and then there's three separate subsections, and one of them deals with the trustee as a hypothetical lien creditor, and I won't read it verbatim, and another one deals with the trustee being a bona fide purchaser for value. And so essentially what those sections mean of Section 544 of the Bankruptcy Code is that a trustee or a debtor is given superpowers that even if the debtor, for example, knew that a lien wasn't properly recorded or a purchaser didn't record a deed or there was some defect in, in title, that 
the trustee or debtor is given these superpowers and the debtor in possession is different than the pre-petition debtor who knew about these things. And so the statute says without regard to any knowledge. And so the trustee or debtor may be given these superpowers, notwithstanding the fact that the debtor knew all about this. And so importantly, the trustee or the debtor's rights are determined as of the date that the debtor filed this bankruptcy petition. And again, like I said earlier, with respect to preferences and fraudulent transfers, the trustee or debtor's avoidance powers under this section, dealing with hypothetical lien creditors or bona fide purchasers of value, must be asserted by way of an adversary proceeding, which is a complaint within the bankruptcy case. Unlike preferences, or unlike fraudulent transfers, which, which have a specific statute of limitations, obviously we, we talked earlier about preferences, which is 90 days, and it could be extended for insiders if you look back a year, fraudulent transfers, two years, or if you go back to the state law, it's four or six years. There are no time restrictions imposed by uh, transactions that are challenged under this section dealing with bona fide purchasers for value or, or hypothetical lien creditors. So there could be something that happened many years ago. And if it still was a defect in title because it wasn't reported properly 10 years ago, a trustee can still avoid it. Um, so there's no statute of limitations. And examples of this, Mike, are, you know, again, lenders who fail to record a mortgage, lenders who fail to comply with the state reporting statutes. And, you know, if, for example, if, if, um, if the state reporting statute requires two witnesses, and they only have one witness, things like that. It could be minor defects, but nevertheless, if you don't comply with the recording statute, it could render your security interest or your mortgage, whatever you're, we're talking about, defective, and it could be attacked as avoidable by a trustee or a debtor. Another example is the buyer who buys property but fails to record properly record the deed, and so the debtor remains in the chain of title as the, the owner of the property. That could be something that could be attacked in bankruptcy as well. Great. I really have one last question for both Tara and Joe. You guys deal in bankruptcy sales and bankruptcy auctions. And I think the section is section 363. Can you just tell our audience how a bankruptcy sale under the applicable section helps to convey clear title? And then you're a title agent. You can ensure something that's the subject of a bankrupt sale or auction. What that agent should or should not look for. Tara, why don't you take this because I've monopolized the last few minutes, so, you know. Sure. So, Mike, you've shown you know a little bit because you got the statutory section right. Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code governs sales in, in bankruptcy. And Section 363B of the Code provides that a trustee or debtor may use, sell, or lease the state property outside of the ordinary course of business subject to bankruptcy court approval. So, outside of the ordinary course of business typically means a debtor trying to sell substantially all of its assets. And this is an extremely powerful tool in bankruptcy and is often these days the sole purpose of a bankruptcy to go through a maximized value through a bankruptcy sale. And one of the reasons is Section 363 of the code allows a debtor to sell the assets free and clear of any interest in the property subject to certain conditions. So for example, if the interest holder consents to the sale, if the interest is a lien and the sale price exceeds the aggregate value of all liens on the property, the interest is in bona fide dispute, or the interest holder could be compelled in a legal or equitable proceeding to accept money satisfaction of its interest in property. So in other words, what you often see is you have a sale 
and there's liens against the property and the property sold, the order in the case provides that the liens will attach to the proceeds of the sale, and that can all get sorted out later and allow a sale to go through and close. And the reason for this is that through the process that 363 sets up, the assets sold free and clear are cleansed, and that allows for a competitive bidding process that maximizes the value to the estate and brings the most money in because the purchaser feels protected by the free and clear language in the code and those provisions. In terms of a process, the debtor markets the asset sometimes pre-bankruptcy, sometimes during bankruptcy, depending on how much time they have. They will come up with an asset purchase agreement often with a stocking horse bidder who's determined to be the highest bidder and that sets the baseline for the sale. The stocking horse bidder will, in exchange for agreeing to serve in that role, get certain benefits like break up the expense reimbursements and other perks by setting the baseline for the sale price. The debtor files a motion in the bankruptcy court and seeks approval for an auction process and different procedures that will, once approved, run its course, hopefully set up a competitive process, and once the successful bidder is chosen, the court will approve the sale of the assets. And it can take anywhere from maybe 30 days to 60 or 90 days, depending on how complicated the process is. But I think for the second part of your question, what title company would need to be concerned about. The clear title should be conveyed by operation of Section 363. But as we all know, it's always better to make sure an order has the bells and whistles that a title company wants and needs to be comfortable to ensure that there's no defects later. So I think my biggest recommendation would be to have the title company involved as early as possible in reviewing the proposed order and making sure you're making any kind of necessary changes um, before the order's entered to avoid problems later on. Great. I think that's all I have for you guys. Bethany, do you have anything? No, I think, Mike, you covered everything. Thank you so much, guys. It's great having you on today. We really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you for having us. And I think uh, the takeaway from all this is that Never try to foray into bankruptcy court without hiring an experienced bankruptcy attorney. <laughs> Thank you again to Joe Schwartz and Tara Shellhorn of our bankruptcy group. That really was great. Thank you for being on today. And as always, we will end our podcast with a current title insurance case that we want to take you through. And we've got Mike Crowley of our title insurance team here to do that today. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good, Bethany. How are you? Good, thanks. So tell us the name of the case, where it's from, and give us a little bit of background of what the case is about. Absolutely. So, so the case we're talking about today is uh, Tiffany's Partners versus Chicago Title, which is a case from last month out of the Western District of Pennsylvania. The case is basically about the transfer of a property amongst affiliated entities. So in 2012, an entity called Tiffany's Tyrone, which was a limited partnership, which is very important in this case, purchased a property that obtained a title insurance policy from Chicago Title. And that is a $3 million property consisting of about 60 acres, most of which was vacant land, but some of which contained an assisted living facility. So in 2013, Tiffany's Tyrone, the owner of the property, obtained refinancing from HUD. And as part of that transaction, it actually had to convey the vacant property to another entity. So it conveyed the 58 acres of vacant land to a company called Tiffany's Partners, 
which I'm going to refer to as partners going forward for obvious reasons. Partners was the 99.9% owner and the limited partner of Tiffany's Tyro. So Partners later subdivided the property, sold a portion of it to a third party. And in 2020, the third party brought a lawsuit against Partners, basically saying that Partners did not have title to that complete parcel of land. So Partners then turned back to Chicago Title and made a title insurance claim, basically saying that it is the insured under the policy and that it needed coverage for that lawsuit. Chicago Title denied coverage, basically saying, no, you're not the insured. Tyrone was the insured. Partners is not the insured. So partners then brought this action against Chicago title and the parties cross moved for summary judgment. And what happened? What did the court find? So the court ruled for the title insurance company for Chicago title here, and it denied partners motion, basically finding that there was no coverage because partners is not the insured under the policy. And the decision really came down to the definition of the word insured under the policy. And there were two sections of that definition that are at play here. So the first one is partners argued that it was a successor to the insured by dissolution, merger, consolidation, distribution, or reorganization. And specifically, Partners was claiming that it was a successor by distribution simply because it purchased the property from Tyrone. And I'll interrupt you for a minute there, Mike, because I thought it was an interesting, I'll use the word interesting argument that they made that they used the word distribution on the deed. And I think they were trying to say there, well, because we threw in the word distribution, we now fit into this category because look, the definition in the policy uses that word distribution. So that's on our deed. It must be that we now are under this policy provision because we use that word distribution. And that's not what the court found though. It, <laughs> it's a, I think the court said, well, you know, that's a clever argument, but not so much. Right. Yeah. So the court it probably did find it to be a clever argument, as you said, not so much. The court basically said, no, just because you purchased the property does not make you a successor by distribution, even if the deed includes that language. It actually specifically noted that there's another section of the definition of insured that says that refers to a successor to the title of the insured, that that was not included in this provision. And it basically said, no, when we're talking about a successor to an insured, those are situations when the original insured no longer exists as a corporate entity. So there's some sort of a dissolution or something like that, and that this new entity takes over for it. So this does not apply. There's no question that Tyrone is still an active entity. In fact, it still owned the nursing home. So it said that definition certainly does not apply here. And I thought it was interesting that the analysis that the court went through there, in addition to, as you said, you know, they mentioned, essentially that provision of the policy means the original entity is no longer going to be existing. It's not something that's going to be around anymore. You can't just throw the word distribution on your deed and pretend it's the same thing. But I also liked the idea that they analyzed it by looking at the other words around distribution. And if I can, there's a quote I want to read from the case where they say, quote, distribution as used in section 1DIB must be read consistently with its companions. Thus, it must refer to the liquidation of an entity's assets rather than partnership distributions made in the ordinary course of business, end quote. And I liked how they brought in that it's companions. And they looked at the fact that, well, the other words that are in that section of the definition there of the term insured include dissolution, merger, consolidation, distribution, or reorganization. And they looked at dissolution, merger, consolidation as the companions. So I thought that was an interesting point there that the court made. Yeah, I think they definitely use a common sense interpretation of that section of the policy. And now there was also another provision 
that was at issue here as well. In addition to the provision about the successor by distribution, what else was the court looking at here? What was the other argument that was made by the insured or the party pretending to be the insured <laughs> or claiming, I shouldn't say pretending, the party claiming to be the insured? Right. So partner's second argument, and this is, I think, probably the more interesting section of this case. The second argument was that there's a section of the definition of insured that includes a grantee of an insured under a deed delivered without payment of actual valuable consideration conveying the title if the grantee wholly owns the named insured. Now, partner said as the 99.9% owner of the original insured, it should be deemed an insured under the policy. And specifically, what partners noted was that in Pennsylvania, it's impossible for a limited partnership to be 100% owned by a single entity. There has to be at least two entities as owners. They said, therefore, this is as close as a Pennsylvania limited partnership can be to being wholly owned. Certainly a creative argument, and frankly, a good argument. It is something that the court uh, towards the end does get into to address that point. So what the court ultimately found here was with regard to the 99.9% ownership, the court said that's not sufficient. The court said, you know, th this is not an ambiguous provision. Wholly owned means wholly owned, which means 100% owned, regardless of what you think it might mean. The contract itself is not ambiguous. And it said, you know, quote, ambiguity must emanate from the contractual language itself, not from any party's perception or interpretation of those terms. So accordingly, the court found that partner was not insured under the policy, therefore dismissed the action as against Chicago title. And I liked how the court said, wholly owned means wholly owned. It does not mean, quote, effectively whole or, quote, nearly whole. It means wholly owned. It was one of those, you know, almost doesn't count here. <laughs> it's wholly owned is what wholly owned means. Yeah. Is there anything else, Mike, that you want to tell us about this case? Yeah, I thought it was a good argument that partner made, basically saying that, you know, under Pennsylvania, you need at least two owners of a limited partnership. So this is as close as anyone we can get. Basically, that it's legally and factually impossible for anyone to be the whole owner of a limited partnership. And they said, because it's impossible, therefore, this provision, you know, it should be ruled in our favor. And the court disagreed. It basically said, that's not really how this works. It said, look, Tyrone was the insured under the policy. So it's not as if we're eviscerating coverage under the policy. What we're eviscerating is this minor exception. And it said, quote, while affording wholly owned its plain meaning may render it inapplicable in most, if not all cases, it would not cause an outright deprivation of rights at the heart of the contract. So it acknowledged a creative argument. It basically said, it's not going to fly here and you're not the insured under the policy. Great. Thanks, Mike. And just for everybody listening at home, a reminder of the case site. I'm not sure if we gave it to you before or not. If we didn't, it's not a reminder and it will be brand new information. But the case site for your reference is 2021 Westlaw 4711284. And as Mike mentioned earlier, it is a Western District of Pennsylvania case and it came out around October 8th, 2021. And again, the site is 2021 Westlaw 4711284. So thank you very much, Mike. That was really, I thought, an interesting case. And we appreciate you taking the time to go through that with us today. And thanks again to our bankruptcy partners, Joe Schwartz and Tara Shellhorn. Great having you guys on as well. And I think that concludes this episode of our Title Nerds podcast. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you, or more properly, you'll hear us on the next one. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at riker.com. 
We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds. 